In the passage we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, it's been a busy time in ministry for Jesus and the disciples. And so Jesus decides to take them away for a while to kind of get some rest and relaxation and kind of get away from the crowds. And so he takes them and they go down to the beach, which is a great thing. And then they get into a boat and decide to go sailing. And they sail across the uh, sea right there to the southwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And when they dock and they get out, they decide that they're going to go for a hike up this one mountain right there that overlooks the entire region. So they hike up the mountain, and to their surprise, when they get to the top and begin to look down, the very crowds that they've been trying to avoid are following them. In fact, thousands of them, following them down the western shore and arriving there at the bottom of the mountain. And you can imagine how they felt. I mean, probably one of their first thoughts were, we've got to get out of here, you know, or, or we need them to get out of here. But, uh, you know, Jesus didn't approach it like that at all. And in fact, what Jesus did, he began to walk right towards the crowds. And he turns and he looks at the disciples and he said, uh, you know, it's getting late. How are we going to feed all these people? Now, the disciples, you know, they kind of look at one another, confused, a little dazed, uh, probably nervous. It's kind of like when someone asks you a question and you think, I'm not sure what we're playing, so I'm not sure I uh, want to go along with this, you know. Uh, what, what's going on here? And he, uh, Jesus, though, pursues the crowds, walks right on down. One of the disciples turns to him and says, um, you know, if I cashed in eight months' worth of paychecks, we still couldn't feed these people more than a bite. I mean, this, this isn't going to work. Now, in fairness to the disciples, they hadn't yet fully realized who Jesus was and what he was about. That would come more over time. They were on kind of a remedial course, which we can relate to, uh, you know, so it was kind of like that with them. There was a little boy there, and he had some food, because little boys always bring along food. And he had some food, and um, in his pail he had five barley loaves and two fish in this little Moses lunchbox. And so he's there, and so Jesus, he gives that food to Jesus, and Jesus blesses the food, and then he begins to hand it out to the disciples, and they begin to disperse it amongst the people. And Jesus keeps reaching in, and he keeps giving, and they keep dispersing, until everyone there had had more than enough to eat. And you know, I began to wonder, you know, what, what, what must have been going through their minds? What must have been going through the minds of the people, you know, or what must have been going through the disciples' minds? I mean, did, did they realize what was going on? Because amongst the people, there were like 5,000 men, along with all the women and children. And yet Jesus was able to feed them all. What he was doing was he was showing that he had total power over the creation that the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, they all were under his command. So he disperses this to all of the people, and as he does, they, uh, they eat and they're satisfied. Finally, they begin to realize what's going on, and they think, this must be the prophet we've been waiting for. And when that thought begins to go through their mind, they think, we will take him by force and make him king over us and, and kind of have this revolt against the government. But Jesus, knowing what was in their hearts, he just kind of walks away and, and moves on up the mountain and, and leaves them alone. Later that night, as it's beginning to uh, grow dark, he, he talks to the disciples. He knows they're very weary. He puts them in a boat and says, you guys go on ahead and I'll disperse the crowds. So they do. And about two miles out into the lake and about uh, two hours later, all of a sudden the, the storms are kind of coming up some. The water is very choppy. The winds are blowing hard. And the disciples are really straining to get across the lake. And as they're there, right in the middle of their seasickness, right in the middle of the fear of all the waves and things like that, they look up and there Jesus appears. 
And he begins to walk up, walks right up to the boat. They are scared spitless. You know, they're looking around there thinking, holy cow. They're, they're thinking it must be some ghost or something. But then they realize it's Jesus, and they invite him into the boat. And as soon as he steps in, immediately they arrive at their destination. Once again, the creation bowing down to the creator. Well, the next day, the people that had been down at the mountainside, they come up and they make their way to the north shore, and Jesus is there teaching. And kind of a controversial conversation breaks out because they come to Jesus and they say, what are, the, uh, what are the works of God? What kind of things does he want us to do? And Jesus said, the works of God are simply these, believe in the one whom he has sent. And then he went on to say, you know, guys, the only reason you're following me is because of the bread that I provided for you. It met your physical needs. But I am the bread of life. And if you'll come to me, you'll have all of your needs met. And they're kind of looking at one another like, bread of life? What? But Jesus went on. He said, in fact, unless you take of me, you really won't experience real life. And you really won't experience eternal life. At that point, some of the disciples looked at him and they said, you know what? This is too hard. Um, we, we can't really accept that. And so many of the ones who had followed him up to that point left and went away. And Jesus turned to the 12 at that point, and he said, um, do you guys want to go too? And Peter, the one who always spoke up first, and one of his best friends looked at him and said, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Good morning. Good to see you all here. We're uh, going to dig into another scene from the life of Jesus this morning. We have been looking over the past several weeks at different scenes from his life to pull out of them what we can learn about his character and therefore God's character and his identity. Uh, First week on Easter, we looked at the cleansing of the temple. And we learn in the cleansing of the temple that Jesus is pure, and so we can trust him. If somebody's pure, they don't have mixed motives, uh, they have integrity. What you see on the outside is what's going on on the inside. They're, they're wholly integrated, and so you can trust them. You really can trust them. They're, they're going to do what they say they're going to do, and they are who they say they are, and, and you really can Trust him. He, he also said in that context that the resurrection is one of the key proofs of who I am. I, I am the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God himself. He says the resurrection is going to prove that. The next scene we looked at was the woman at the well, which showed that uh, God really doesn't play favorites. Jesus walked through Samaria, not around it. People in his day would would typically walk around Samaria, at least the Jewish folks would not go through Samaria. So we gather from that that God's love is unconditional, that he accepts us and he gives us what we really need. He accepts us where we are, and then he gives us what we need to get where we really need to go. And then we looked at the healing at the pool near Bethesda, and uh, we found from that that Jesus has the power to heal. Uh, that that he really does care 
for us, and he wants to heal us if we will allow him to do so. And in that, he gave several witnesses last week we looked at that point to his identity and uh, verify that. Scriptures being one of them and how you look at the Old Testament and in the Old Testament there are many, many prophecies about the Messiah. There are at least four dozen prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Christ. And so you can learn about his identity and verify it. That's one of the ways, and he gave some other ways as well, but that's, that's the main one. One of the things I take away from the healing at the Pool of Bethesda, if you have open wounds, either emotionally or spiritually or mentally, don't let them fester. He can heal you. Jesus wants to heal you. Don't leave them open. Open wounds infect the way you relate to people. They infect the way that you think, the way that you handle life. Jesus wants to heal those things. And we looked at how that's the case last week. Today we're going to look at another scene from the life life of Jesus. John wrote this book. We're pulling these scenes out of the Gospel of John. John wrote this book about 25 to 30 years after uh, the other Gospels were written, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They, they were written earlier, and they're referred to as the Synoptic Gospels, which Synoptic only means the same. That's what it means. They're all the same. They have the same wording, the same stories. They tend to tell the same stories in the same way and the same sequence of things. Um, now, each of them are a little different because they have different purposes. They were written to different audiences. But they're basically the same with little nuances here. Well, John wrote after those were written. And so what he does, he writes for a very specific purpose to prove that Jesus is who he said he was. So what he tends to do is he tends to pull different scenes out of the life of Jesus. And he's not as concerned about being, uh, I think generally he's chronologically correct, but he's not as concerned about chronicling the life of Christ as he is tracking the claims of Christ that he made. And so, um, for instance, there's a two-year period in the life of Jesus, and he only writes about two miracles. And those are the ones that Neil told about and that we're looking at today. We're really only going to look at one of those miracles. But the feeding of the thousands on the hill and then uh, the walking on water which had a little miracle tucked in it. I don't know if you've ever caught it, but if you read that story, as soon as Jesus steps into the boat, they're on the shore. That's a little miracle within a miracle. It's kind of interesting. But it shows his power over creation. And we're going to look at why God would do this, why Jesus would do this in a moment. But anyway, uh, John pulls these out of this two-year period. Two years, these are the only miracles he mentions. Because they're very significant in terms of what they say about Jesus Christ and who he is. So we're going to dig into that. John 6 says in verse 1 through 4, sometime after this, we've been looking at some things. Lots been going on. Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he he had performed on the sick. So he's gathering a crowd. Um, then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. 
the Jewish Passover feast was near. He, he's trying to get away. It's been an exhausting week. He's trying to get away, but the crowd won't let him go. It's the Passover feast. Every Jewish person right now at this time of year should be heading to Jerusalem. But Jesus, is, he's got their attention. So they're, they're following these crowds, these throngs of people are following him to hear what he's teaching because it's revolutionary and to watch what he does because it's amazing what he's doing. And so that's, that's the context for our fourth scene, the feeding of the 5,000, or really it was uh, closer to 10,000 because they don't include in their count the, the women and children. But in this scene, Jesus demonstrates God's compassion to the crowd. Look at verses 10 through 13 of John 6. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the man sat down, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of the of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now, that's an amazing thing, isn't it, what happened here? It says he gave thanks, and in the Greek, you can pull a lot more out of the, ver- the verbs than we can in English. This is originally written in Greek. It says he gave thanks. That's a one-time event. He gave thanks. Happened. When, he, when it says he distributed the loaves, it's a continual process. The verb means... He started distributing, and he kept distributing. So this miracle happened in his hands. So as he began to break the loaves and hand them out, it just just more and more and more kept, kept flowing out of his hands. Same with the fish. So we learn some things about Jesus in this. The first thing we learn is that even though he was exhausted, his disciples were exhausted. They tried to pull away from the crowds to take a break. It had been a long week. Maybe a long month, maybe a long couple of years. But they were trying to take a break. The crowds tracked them down. And Jesus, can, he, he chooses compassion for them. He chooses to meet their needs. I mean, I, I equate it to, it's been a long week, it's Friday night. I've been wanting to see this movie, so I rent a movie at Blockbuster. I've got the popcorn, it's just been cooked, it's out of the microwave, I've, it's in the bowl. I've poured butter all over it which is what I do, but drives my wife crazy. But, man, it's good. Let me tell you. <laughs> I poured butter all over. I'm sitting there, and I'm just getting settled in. The phone rings. Somebody calls. They need, they need something. They either need to talk. They need a ride. Maybe they, they have a flat tire. Maybe it's one of my children. They need money. It's a possibility. <laughs> but I'm thinking, oh, I just got relaxed. I have a choice to make. Am I going to help, or am I just going to blow it off? But Jesus is in that spot, and he chooses to help. He he has compassion. You know, there there weren't any 7-Elevens in the first century. So these people that were following him, they were stuck. They they weren't going to find food. They, They were out on the hillside, and they were in a predicament. So they needed someone to help them, and he, he, he did. Um, something else we learn about Jesus is he holds the power of creation 
in his hand. This is an important thing. C.S. Lewis called this the miracle of the old creation, or the miracle of old creation. Same as the water, when Jesus changed the water to wine. It's a creative miracle. It shows that he has the power of creation in his hands. There's a miracle of new creation. That means the new creation (coughs) is referring to the fact that when you come to Christ, he makes you new, and that we're, we're going to get a new body and things in heaven. But this is a miracle of old creation. And he explained that what Jesus did here is he simply short-circuited a natural process and changed a little bread into a lot of bread and a few fish into many fish. See, Jesus was tempted by the devil at one point to change the stones into bread. That's not a natural process. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. He said that, I think if you were here last week, we read that, how he only does what he sees the Father doing. Um, You don't see God turning stones into bread, but you see him turning, you know, growing grain. He multiplies seeds of grain that's planted, it grows, and it becomes, we've learned how to turn it into bread. And he does the same thing with fishes, fishies, (laughs) fishies in the sea. He multiplies them. You look in the sea, and man, they're just He's an amazing God. He has created this world that we can exist in. He's put it together just so, so that there's food to eat that comes from seed. There is food to eat that comes from fishes that multiply in the sea. And so C.S. Lewis suggests that this miracle was accomplished by the creative power of God. And it was accomplished to show that Jesus had that same power that God has, that created all the seed and the grain and the fish. It was a message written in small letters that has already been, been written in large letters across the face of the universe. That our God has ordered things in a way to take care of us. It's an amazing thing that happened here. Now, do you have a hard time believing this miracle? If you're an American, I bet you do. <laughs> I bet it's hard. We, we tend to be very scientific, and it's hard for us to see something like this happening that is outside our realm of experience. But I would tell you, most Americans believe in God. And if you believe that God exists, why wouldn't he do this? Why couldn't he do this if he wanted to? Here's a paper this fell down. Um, and if I were to take this sheet of paper and cut it into a paper doll, I could call it Mr. Flat. And we put Mr. Flat on the ground because Mr. Flat is only two-dimensional, and we are three-dimensional. He exists on a plane. This is an illustration that was told by uh, Hugh Ross, who is a scientist who started out as an atheist and then came to Christ. This is, this is really helpful for me to understand how God can step into our world. But anyway, Mr. Flat is two-dimensional. We're three-dimensional. He doesn't have depth. He doesn't have any depth to him. But I can do things in his world that he can't do in my world. I can, he, he has to, when he moves, he has to move like this. He's flat. He has to move along a plane. Well, I can go... Like this, I can move all around his world because I, I'm outside of his world. I transcend it. 
because I'm three-dimensional. And so we live in three dimensions. That's what we know. God, who created the universe, has to transcend the world he created. He lives, he exists in more than three dimensions. He is outside of our world and he's able to step into it and do things that we don't have the ability to do. And that's what Jesus was showing. I am who I say I am. I am the son of God. I I have the power of creation in my hands. And he was working with God. He keeps saying this. I'm, I'm working with God. I'm doing what the Father shows me. And God gives him the power to do in this world what, what we, don't, we don't see happening. And so it's, it's an object lesson that Jesus is giving us. That he has the power to provide for us. He has the power to step in and do things that we don't expect him to be able to do naturally. So he, he also used the, the miracle as an object lesson for his disciples. He had, he had given them a test prior to the miracle. Check out the test that he, he gave them in verses 5 through 9. It says, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. Remember, they've, they've seen Jesus do some amazing things. They've been, they are prepared for the test. I, you know, good teachers prepare students for the test that's coming. They were prepared. They knew Jesus had the ability to do whatever needed to be done. Philip answered him, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have even just a bite, not, not let alone enough to fill them up. So how are we going to handle this? 200 days wages, 200 denarii, that's not enough. So Philip didn't do very well on the test. He actually performed a math equation and that it wasn't a math test. This is not a math test. That's not what Jesus was trying to get at. Another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two fish, but how far will they go among so many? So he surveys the resources, finds what's available, says, okay, here's what we've got. He does a little better, but he didn't do that great. Now, how are these going to feed thousands of people? How is this going to happen? I don't, I don't get this. I don't know what's going on. So he did a little better, but not that great. Then Jesus uses what's available to serve the crowd. Here's the lesson from the test. Give what you have to God while doing what you know to do, and he will accomplish his purpose in and through you. That's what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, because over and over again, they would run into that problem. A predicament. How am I going to handle this? How am I going to deal with this? Well, I need to remember what Jesus did on the hillside. Give God what I have, do what I know to do, and trust him to come through. This is what we face all the time. You know, the things that really matter, we can't handle them in our own power, in our family, as parents. You know, we don't know how our kids are going to turn out exactly. They, they actually have a mind of their own, it turns out. And so we, we take what we have, 
And we do our best and we trust God. We do what we know to do. We do the right that we know to do and we trust God with it. We do the same with with our work. You know, we're not in control of if you own a business, you don't know how the economy is going to turn. If you're in a company, you're not in control of your promotions. So you give what you've got to God. Do your best with what you know to do and trust him. Same with our finances. In ministry, this is really the case. Because if you're trying to help people, if you're trying to serve them and help them, really help them in a spiritual way, you can't do it. You can only do what you know to do and trust God to take care of things. In our finances, same thing. You may be up against a wall financially. And if you'll trust God and learn to do things his way, do what you know to do, give what you have to God, give it all to God. It's his anyway. We're only renting on earth for 70, 80 years. You give it all to God. You do what you know to do. You learn more and more how to be wise and handle things. And then you trust him and watch him work. He he transcends our situations and we can trust him. So that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to the disciples. He's trying to bring them along and help them understand that he can be trusted. And this is the way you need to respond to each situation you face where you're not quite sure how it's going to go. The things that really matter are beyond our control. And if you follow Christ, this is the test. Yes to God over and over again as you face the predicaments. So after the miracle, Jesus gives the crowd a reality check. Verses 14 and 15 say this. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come in and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So he pulls back. They want to make him king, and he pulls back. The crowds reach the right conclusion, but they have the wrong response. They, they begin to understand who he is, but they choose the wrong response. At this point, they should have chosen to bow their knee to him and make him Lord. Recognize him as the the king that he is and make him the Lord of their life. But instead, they wanted him to follow their agenda and do their will. And God, God doesn't do that. This is an important thing to understand. And here's the lesson. The greatest privilege in life is to be used by God for his purposes. And we can't use God for ours. See, the people were wanting to exploit Jesus. Wow, did you see that? The guy took the bread and he just made all kinds of all kinds of bread out of the bread. I mean, this is a miracle. He's got power. I'm going to use him to do what I need, what I want. God doesn't work that way. As you recognize who he is, you need to submit yourself to be used for him and his purposes. The Lord will not be used for our purposes. But he, ex- he expects you and I to submit to his purposes. That's why you need, you need to know this if you're investigating Christianity. If you're checking it out, trying to figure out if Jesus is really who he said he is. You need to understand that what you need to work toward is uh, the point where you say, Okay, God, you, you are real. Jesus, you are who you said you are. And I'm going to follow you as my Lord and leader from this day forward. 
Because if you don't have that understanding, if you think that you're going to be able to use God for your own purposes, you get really confused. It is very, very confusing. Because you have something you want, and you pray about it, and you're trying to pull God along, and you'll, oh, he's not there. He's not answering my prayer. He's not doing what I want. What's the deal? It's confusing. Because what God's doing is, he is wanting to use you for the purpose he made you for. And you can't do it the other way. God didn't come. Jesus didn't come to make our life easier. He did, he did come to make our life better, but not easier. We can't exploit him. We can't see the opportunity to use him for our purposes, but we have to get in line with his. Then... Things begin to make sense when you do. The next thing you, you get out of this is that Jesus explains how to live for the truly important. Verse 24 through 27 says, once the crowd realized, oh, okay, this is, sorry, I cut out where Jesus walked on the water and went to the other side of the lake just because if I left it in, we'd be here till one. So I, I left that out. That's an amazing thing. That Jesus did, and it also shows his power over creation, over the, the, the winds and the storm. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, we're, we're going to have to move on for time's sake. Verse 24 through 27. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples was there, were there, they only saw the disciples get in the boat and go across the lake. They didn't see Jesus do that, so they're, they're trying to find him. They don't, they don't have a GPS locator on them, so they can't find They're just scrambling, trying to find, find him. They got into their boats, went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? In other words, they didn't, you know, it's a long road around the lake, and he went directly across, so they're amazed that he got there. Well, he doesn't address that issue. He says, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill, because I took care of you. I gave you what you needed and what you wanted. In other words, they, had, they aren't making the shift to, this is God. I need to do his purposes. They're still following him to get what they, what they want and need out of the deal. Do not work for food that spoils, he says, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. You know, fulfillment and joy. Jesus is trying to say this. Don't, don't just live for the stuff on this earth. You know, don't, don't just live for stuff. It rusts, it, it fades, it, it wears out. But live for the things that really matter. The things that really count. That's where fulfillment and joy comes. You know, bread meets a need for, for a, a moment, a while. But doing this work, doing these things that really matter, bring this sense of fulfillment that transcends that. This is what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and communicate to the, to the crowd. That if you live for what really matters, boy, life is good. These guys were locked onto the fact that Jesus had the power to meet their needs every day. And if they could talk him into it, 
they could live a life of power and luxury. They were under the oppression of the Roman government, and they saw in him the power to overthrow that government, and they wanted to use him for their purpose. Jesus points out how short-sighted they are. He says that they need to live with an eternal dimension in mind. And he says to do that, faith is the start. Verse 28 and 9, and then 30, it says, Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one who to to believe sorry to believe in the one he has sent you believe in the one that god has sent they're saying just tell me what to do i'll read the bible i'll do the religious stuff just give me the religious equation that helps me to please god jesus says no it's not it's not what you do you can't do it you can't do enough it's a predicament see we've sinned It cut us off. Our sin, our rebellion against God has cut us off from knowing him personally. And we don't have the resources that he has to offer available to us because we've walked away from him. He lets you live an independent life if you choose. And so we're in a predicament. How do we have a relationship with God? To have a relationship with a pure and holy God, you have to be pure and holy. And so what God does is he provides in Jesus Christ the way into that relationship. He's the way out of this predicament as well. It's all tied into what he's trying to communicate. He has provided the way out. It's amazing, isn't it? Look at verse 30. It says, so they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Now, hadn't he just done a couple of amazing things? Hadn't they been following because of the healing that he had been doing? They asked for another sign. Oh, what is up with these people? (laughs) I'd probably want one, too, to be honest. Give me another sign. Actually, one of the things that was going on behind this is the Jewish rabbis used to teach that when the Messiah come, this is not scripture, but they used to teach that when the Messiah came, he would do the same miracle that God did in the wilderness with Moses of the manna coming down. So, you know, they for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness and God provided this manna every morning, which is kind of a mysterious thing. It was, that's, that would be legendary, wouldn't it? I mean, if you were, you were among the people that this happened to, it's legendary that that happened. I mean, you wake up and there's this manna. It was sort of mysterious. The word actually means, what is it? That's what manna means. So they got up and they didn't know what it was. They're like, what is it? And that's what they started calling it. What is it? Hey, how'd you enjoy your what is it this morning? You know, and uh, I don't know. What was that? <laughs> you could do a whole whole routine on that, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> so they were looking for the Messiah to do what they thought he should do. But he wasn't going to do that. It makes sense. And at some level, you know, he had just broken the bread and fed the thousands. Makes sense that this is the next day. Where's today's bread? I want that. They wanted they wanted another sign. But here's what they didn't understand. They thought the order was to see, then believe. But that's not the way it works. You believe and then you see. 
That's the right order. They were always looking for a sign because they thought if they saw the right sign, they would believe. But it's really a heart matter. That's what Jesus said in John 7, 17. It's not on the screen, but he said, if any man's will is to do his will, God's will, then he will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. If your heart is in it to follow God, you'll know the truth. If it's not, you won't see it. You'll miss it. Because that's, that's what we do. We don't, we don't look closely enough. If you're investigating Christ, to follow him means to put your complete trust in him. That's the work that God requires, to trust him. He becomes your Lord and your leader. He directs your everyday life. He begins to call the shots. He begins to, to completely revolutionize the way you handle your relationships with your family, work, your time, your money. That's what it means. Faith that will follow in every aspect of life is the start of your relationship with God and doing what really matters. It also requires faith to continue in this relationship. Jesus said in in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. After you decide to follow the Lord in faith, you continue in the same way. Look at verse 6 of Colossians 2. It says, So then, just as you received Christ, Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. So the same way you receive him, you receive him in faith. And you continue in faith as well. So as you keep running in, you solve the major predicament of our lives, which is how do we gain acceptance from God? The way you gain it is you believe the one he sent and he accepts you. But how do we continue in the life of following him? As you deal with situation after situation where you're out of control, you don't see an answer, there's no apparent solution, you're not quite sure how it's going to go, you trust him. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples. In every situation, you apply the lesson that Jesus was teaching his disciples. Give God what you have, do what you know to do, and trust him. And then he will accomplish his purpose. Remember, it's not about you and I. It's about him. It's about his purpose, what he wants to do through your life. As you get that down, as you begin to understand that, life makes sense. Jesus makes some statements at the close about his identity that force a decision. It's the way Jesus is. Um, He doesn't leave room for neutrality. We would like to give him neutrality, but he didn't himself leave room for neutrality. That's what Mark's going to be looking at in the seminar tonight. Um, The claims of Jesus Christ and how that forces a decision for us. His, His message is straightforward about his identity and what it means to follow him. And this divides his listeners. Look at verse 60. We're skipping down again past his discourse or his teaching. And I'll refer back to it in a minute. But it says, on hearing it, Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And what he had said in this, in this discourse is he had said, I have come down from heaven about seven times. He keeps saying it. I've come down from heaven. And the people in the crowd say, isn't this Joseph and Mary's kid? Isn't he just a carpenter? What does he mean, I have come down from heaven? 
<clears throat> you see, they, they hadn't decided to believe. Their heart was holding back. Because what we do sometimes is we don't really investigate the truth because we don't want to know it. Because if, if Jesus is who he said he is, then I'm going to have to actually change. I'm going to have to get in line and follow him and do what he says. So I'm going to take a surface glance. I don't want to get into it too much. And at a surface glance, I can find all kinds of holes in what he's saying and who he claims to be. And that's what was happening with them. Isn't this Joseph and Mary saying, he's from Nazareth. He's not from Bethlehem. Ah, if they had looked a little closer, he was born in Bethlehem. He could be the Messiah. They they were just taking a surface glance, carelessly checking things out when they could have really dug in and found out more. Oh, he is. He is fulfilling the prophecies. And he's, he's doing so with things that he couldn't control. The other thing they did is they pressed his analogy too far. He was using an analogy in the, in the discourse that I didn't read, that I am the bread of life. He says, uh, whoever eats this bread will gain life everlasting. That grossed them out. Because they thought, I'm not a cannibal. He's the bread of life. I'm not going to eat the bread of life. It was an analogy. They pushed it too far. But you can see they were antagonistic. They didn't want to know the truth. He had to prove it to them if they were going to follow him. And so they were holding back. What what Jesus meant is if you receive him into your heart and his words into your heart, You accept him. You believe the one that God has sent. You have eternal life. They were really listening. They were trying to find ammunition to discredit him and take him down. So anyway, it goes on. There's a discussion. Look at verse 61. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. This is, we're, we're used to the flesh. We're used to this dimension. But what he's doing is in another dimension. He, he wants to help in a way that will go on and on and on forever. <clears throat> Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve, his closest disciples. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. See, he had concluded he, he is who he said he is. I am going to follow him. And he proved it by following to the death. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. Jesus is pointing out here that there are all kinds of reactions. Jesus, uh, Peter spoke for the twelve. He, he spoke out for the twelve, but he, he really didn't have the power to do that. That's why Jesus says this. Every person has to conclude for themselves who Jesus is and what you're going to do with him. 
how are you going to respond? There are three kinds of disciples in this passage. The first kind is those who follow Jesus for a little while, then fall away. His teaching was not hard to understand, but it was hard to accept. Following him is going to require that I lay down my own agenda and I do things his way and I live for his purpose. That's what it means to follow Christ. You live for his purpose and find fulfillment in that. That's when it begins to make sense. But anyway, some follow for a while and then they fall away. The second kind of disciple is one who has never really come to Christ. They've they've never really decided to follow him. Take his claim seriously and say, okay, God, I'm giving you what I've got. They haven't decided to do that. They won't leave. They keep hanging around. And that turns out to be a problem in the end with Judas. And then the third kind, there are those who cannot quit because their hearts have been captured by the love of God and the, and the, the grace of God that they find in knowing Jesus Christ. Your next step in response to this message, if you choose to take it, if you're checking out Christianity, you're searching, that's what this message series has been out all about, searching, investigating who Jesus said he was and what he promises to do. Your next step would be investigate. Tell God, tell God this. God, if you really are true, I will follow you with my whole heart. Would you show me whether or not you're real? That's when you begin to learn whether or not Jesus is who he said he is. A step for those who are already following could be to take your predicaments where you don't have the power. You may be in some financial predicaments, um, relational struggles. You don't have the power to do what needs to be done. Take that to God. Give what you have to God. Do what you know to do and trust him with it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the power that you've shown. Thank you for the life that you give in Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice and your your kindness to us. Help us, God, to choose to follow you and bring, bring honor and glory to you. As we face predicaments in life where we can't see the solution, help us to give them to you to give you what, you, you what is ours, what you've given us to begin with, and do what we know to do and then trust you, God. Help us to walk by faith in handling life and experience your power and love and grace. God, give us the ability to take the next steps that you've shown us to take this morning. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.